Hello, happy Sabbath. Welcome to Rock Today. Um, again, if you're joining us online or here in person, we're glad you're here with us on the Sabbath and you can join us in this worship. Thank you, thank you. Um, this week, um, if you were here last week, you know, we finished a series, uh, a fairly long, hefty series uh, titled How to Study the Bible. And this week, we're in a standalone series, meaning um, if you're joining us for the first time, there's no part one, part two, part three. This is part one of one, a standalone message on its own. And if you're walking here today, um, it's, it's impossible to notice um, what the hallway has turned into. And if you were here any time for the past like two, two and a half months, you've known that we've been talking about VBS, Vacation Bible School, for the past few weeks and talking about how big of a deal this is. And if you were here last year, you know that this really is one of the biggest events here at Rock. And if you look out that hallway and you're surprised, it probably means you were not here last year. Because last year and this year, I, I don't think the extent of the transformation of our church has changed. We're just, we're just in a different place now. But really, it's amazing how, how much this church can change with, with the volunteers and the hours that people have put into. So if you don't know what VBS is, and if you've been here for a while and you hear us talking about VBS, Vacation Bible School, and maybe you didn't grow up in church, and you didn't grow up attending one of these um, in the summer, VBS stands for Vacation Bible School. And it's essentially a week-long program Kind of, you can kind of think of it as like, um, like a summer camp type where you come and we do crafts with the kids, we teach them Bible stories, we do outdoor activities, and we sing songs, we have snacks, but the food is better and you've got to go home and sleep, it, uh, sleep in your bed every night. So honestly, it's just a better version of summer camp in my opinion. And again, like I mentioned last year, this has quickly turned into one of the biggest events that Rock has put on, and it's such a big deal for us. And by the end of, of this upcoming week, hundreds of hours will have put in by the dozens and dozens of volunteers that have poured out, basically given up a month of their summer to make this actually happen. But the reason VBS is such a big deal for us um, isn't just because we want to just provide an awesome experience for our own kids. VBS at its core, and part of the reason this came up in, in and we did it last year, was we wanted to approach this as sort of an outreach event where we can affect people outside of our internal circle, not just our own kids, but the kids in our community, not just our geographical community, but our social communities as well, so that the kids in the general area, as well as the kids in our friend groups and social groups and work groups can be a part of something and have this amazing experience here at Rock Fellowship. Um, but what I mean by amazing experience, if I were to be a little bit more specific, is that we hope to allow children and their parents to experience the love of God through this program, especially those that have never experienced it before. A lot of VBS, when you, when you talk to Irene and, and Helen, the people that coordinated this, a lot of what goes into VBS um, is from the perspective of if someone could walk in and, and doesn't really have an experience with church or God, could they still have a good time? Could their kids still feel welcome? Could the parents feel safe with their kids in this environment? And this is all only possible, like I mentioned earlier, by the dozens and dozens of volunteers and the hundreds and hundreds of man hours that have gone into this program by the end of the week. And when it comes to programs such as VBS, or if you grew up in the Korean American Adventist Church, a VBS or a summer camp or a camp meeting or a Kayam or art of worship, there's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot when it comes to these specific events. And the phrase is this idea of God is using you, or God, you're serving God. When you're part of these summer camps, you're volunteering for something at church, you're being used by God, or you're serving God, or God is speaking through you. And... I know not everyone here is directly helping out with VBS, although if I look around, 
most of the people in this room are somehow, one way, shape, or form, affected um, by VBS. Um, if you've been around church long enough, you've probably heard this saying before, right? Someone, oh, if you do this, if you just say yes to this, if you help out here, God will use you to do these things. You will be, God will be speaking through you. If you do this, you will be serving God. And a lot of times, I feel like these phrases are often associated with a little bit of like almost skepticism, right? It, on one hand, it's a very pressuring statement, like, oh, God is using me? Like, a lot of times that phrase seems like that's something reserved for, like, a Bible hero, right? God used Moses, right? God used Abraham. God used Peter, okay? And on modern day times, sure, God uses, I'll go as far as it, God uses pastors and maybe a Sabbath school teacher, but, like, God doesn't use me. And a lot of times, this, this cynicism of, like, what does it actually mean to be used by God? It seems like, oh, it's like a feel-good phrase that you throw at people to get them to volunteer for certain things, Right, but what does it actually mean to be used by God? And am I actually serving God when I'm doing something as mundane as some of the things that we do? But I feel like the most common form of skepticism comes from maybe these two questions and these two perspectives of what it means to serve God. Um, and one is a little more harsh and cynical than the other. But the first is, why would God use someone like you? I don't know if you've ever been in a situation in your life where you, you looked down on someone, you had a certain view or perspective of someone, and you wondered, why would God use someone like you? On the flip side, maybe a sentiment that we're more, we can more relate to is, why would God use someone like me? If God actually wanted to use someone, speak through someone, I don't think it would be you. And if God actually needed someone to serve him, I don't think I'm the person for that job. Again, the idea of serving God or being used by God is, is very intimidating. And if you've ever been, um, if you've ever felt any of those feelings with the idea of like, how can God actually use me? Why would God use you? Why would God want to use me? And what does it actually mean? And you've approached those sentiments with like, or those feelings and those statements with a bit of like reproach and like, ah, oh, I don't know, a little bit of uneasiness, then I'm glad you're here worshiping with us today. And invite you into a word of prayer with me as we go into our message. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, thank you so much for this opportunity for us to come together. And Lord, it's easy for us to forget, in spite of everything that's happened in the past few years, just the blessing it is to simply be here together in your presence, Father. Thank you for the praise that led us into our hearts and minds of, of worship to you, Lord. Thank you for the promise that um, we're not enough unless you come, Father. So that is our prayer today, Lord. Prepare our hearts and our minds for your word, Lord. Soften hearts, open ears and minds, Lord, to your truth as you speak to us today. Praise in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. Um, again, the two ideas that we're going to be talking about in this message is why would God use someone like you? And you can insert the blank of whatever you feel like there. And the second reproach is why would God use someone like me? But we'll go more into that in a little bit. Does anyone know off the top of their head how you can tell um, whether a good baguette bread actually tastes good without actually eating it? Does anyone know? How can you tell what, what a good baguette bread tastes like without actually taking a bite of it? Then you know, contrary to popular belief, it's not in how it looks, and it's not in how it, smell, in how it smells, it's actually in the way that it sounds. When you, when you crisp the baguette, it should make like a symphony of crackle. And if you're in the youth, you know why I know that. Um, that's an iconic line uh, from the movie Ratatouille, which the youth know, is actually my favorite movie. It's probably my favorite movie of all time. It's for sure my favorite Pixar animated movie. Um, and it's definitely the movie I've seen the most growing up. So if you don't know about Ratatouille, I'm going to spoil the entire movie right now, but it has been out for 15 years, so this is on you at this point. Um, Ratatouille is a Pixar animated film, and it's, the premise of this movie is that there is this, this rat, this protagonist named Remy, and he is 
um, has, he's in this unique situation where he can communicate with humans and he can read English, so he can understand um, the world of humans. And he also is in love, he's absolutely in love with all things food, eating food, prepping ingredients, cooking. He's so in love with this. Um, but there's this one problem that he is, in fact, a rat. And he's with this family, with this crew, and one, one way, shape, or form, um, a bunch of events happen, he gets separated from his family, and he ends up in a Parisian restaurant this high-end Parisian restaurant uh, called Gusteau's, named after the former head chef who passes away at the beginning of this movie. Um, and Gusteau has this famous saying, and this is a mantra you hear throughout the entire movie, and this is actually the title of the sermon today, um, and it's anyone can cook. Anyone can cook. And he's this big, jolly, like, happy chef that goes around, he writes his cookbook called Anyone Can Cook. And very early on in the movie, you're introduced to the protagonist of, uh, to the antagonist of this movie, and it's a food critic by the name of Anton Ego, and he's the exact opposite of Gusteau. Gusteau is this chef that's happy, loves life, and he's a bigger dude, and he's like always laughing, and he's so optimistic. Anton Ego is literally the exact opposite. He's like, he's always in black, he's older, frail, skinny, he's unhappy, and his whole thing is, I don't like food, I love it, and I only swallow if I love it. And basically, he talks about the idea that he, he fundamentally disagrees with Gusteau, that no, I don't think anyone can cook. And this is kind of the premise of the story. And he, he writes a scathing review of Gusteau's restaurant that breaks his heart, and he ends up in passing away. And then we're at the beginning of the book, uh, beginning of the movie, where Remy, the rat, who loves cooking, finds himself in a Parisian restaurant. And in the course of this movie, he befriends a human, and basically, by manipulating the hair follicles on this human, he controls the human like a puppet, and he's able to make it by in this high-end Parisian restaurant. And because, and behind the genius, the culinary genius of this rat, this one kind of like, the restaurant Gusto's, which is originally just kind of thrown away, seen as like a bygone restaurant, rises to the top of Parisian cuisine. And all of a sudden, this is like the greatest restaurant in Paris, and everyone wants to be here. And what nobody knows is that it's because of the ingenious of Remy the rat. And again, towards the, the climax of the movie is when Anton Ego, when someone that previously wrote off Gusteau's, wrote a scathing review, has to, because of the popularity of Gusteau's, has to come and give it a second chance. And he comes, and Remy rakes him this, this dish called ratatouille, which is the name of the movie. He eats it, and he falls in love with the food. And Anton Ego, the antagonist, has to admit, this was delicious. And in doing so, he tells the waiter, I would love to give my compliments to the chef. I'd love to give my compliments to the chef. Thank you, this was absolutely delicious. I, would, I need to thank someone for this meal. And then the problem becomes, well, how do we tell this man that a rat cooked him his dinner? And so they wait till everyone goes away. They tell him, okay, you can meet the chef, but you have to wait until the restaurant closes. And after everyone leaves, they bring out the rat, basically in the hand of the waiter, and he opens the toque, and basically the rat is there. And then he takes him to the back, and basically Remy the rat recooks the entire meal for him, and he cannot, and he has, to come to term, he has to come to terms in that moment that this rat cooked him his dinner that changed his life. And my favorite part of this movie is at the very end, where he's, where, where, you know, he's a food critic, so he goes in his room by himself, and he's pacing, and he's, he's trying to come to terms with what just happened. Right? He hates Gusteau's restaurant, but he can't deny that this meal was delicious, but also at the same time, he has to come to terms with the fact that a rat cooked his meal. Again, this is a Disney movie, and this is, you know, all fiction, of course. But he's like, he's trying to come to terms, he's grappling with this, and eventually he sits down to write his review of the restaurant. And I'm going to read the last few sentences of this review, because I think it's just a beautiful monologue. Again, this is not scripture, if you're taking notes, you need to write this down. But this is just a line from the movie. Again, this is the food critic 
he's talking about his experience. And again, this is after he's gathered his thoughts about everything he's experienced, considering his, his previous hatred for Gusto and that mantra, the fact that the food was delicious, and the fact that a rat cooked his meal. A lot of stuff to consume in one night. Last night, I experienced something new, an extraordinary meal from a singularly unexpected source. To say that both the meal and its maker have challenged my preconceptions about fine cooking is a gross understatement. They have rocked me to my core. In the past, I have made no secret of my disdain for Chef Cousteau's famous motto, anyone can cook. But I realize only now do I truly understand what he meant. Not everyone can become a great artist, but a great artist can come from anywhere. It is difficult to imagine more humble origins than those of the genius now cooking at Gusteau's, who is, in this critic's opinion, nothing less than the finest chef in France. That is beautiful monologue. That is, come on guys, that is beautifully written. But basically at the end, he comes to terms with the fact that his preconceived notions of what fine cooking is, of what food should be like, all this stuff, has come crashing down when he realizes this rat, something that should not, could not have been able to do this, cook this amazing meal for him. And again, of course, this is all fictional and it's all someone drew this whole story. But I think the kind of beautiful part of this comes from the fact that he realizes, and I'm sure as anyone that's tried cooking before knows, and I speak from very, very, very personal experience when I say, not anyone can cook delicious edible food. I know that for a fact. Not anyone can cook delicious edible food, but someone but that chef, the person that does cook the food, can come from anywhere, and your personal biases at times can have the ability to blind you to other people's ability. And again, I would argue that many times it's easy for us to let our preconceived notions of someone blind us to the work that God is doing through them in, in their very own lives. And again, to bring it home a little bit more, there's a biblical story that's found in 1 Samuel where there's a story where the prophet Samuel, who's living under the reign of King Saul, the first king of a unified Israel, um, has decided uh, by God, realized that this king, this King Saul, is not working out, and it's time to bring a new person to the throne. And it's awkward because Saul is currently alive, he has an heir, and for all intents and purposes, his son should be the one to take the throne. But because of God's word and his, dis his blatant disobedience of God, God has told the prophet Samuel, who's the person in charge of, of finding the next king, to go and find somebody else. And he sends him to the town of Bethlehem, um, to Jesse's household. The problem is this. He can't come to Jesse's house and say, hey, I'm looking for the next king of Israel because that would be treason and he would die. So he goes to Bethlehem with the disguise of saying, I'm here to offer a sacrifice. Can you bring your family to join me? And they do. And in doing so, um, Jesse brings all seven of his sons. Again, big family. And he comes before Samuel. And Samuel has this moment where he kind of inspects one of them one at a time. Again, his hidden motive is he's here to find the next king of Israel. And again, Samuel's a human. He doesn't really have any directions from God as to what exactly he's looking for. All he knows that one of Jesse's sons is going to be the next king of Israel. And the first person he sees is Eliab, his eldest son. And I don't know what Eliab looked, at, looked like or what he said or what he sounded like, but Samuel takes one look at him and he's like, this is the next king. This, this is the guy, right? This is the person that's going to lead Israel. And he's so certain of it. And he brings it up to God and, and he says, surely this is the Lord's anointed one. I mean, just look at him. Again, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what it looks like, but he must have looked pretty impressive, charismatic, tall, whatever it was. He had a certain aura about him that led Samuel to believe this man must be the next king of Israel. And this is what God tells Samuel when God inquires, hey God, is this the guy? Is this the person I'm anointing today? 
And God says, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him, him being Eliab, the eldest son. The Lord does not see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And this continues for the rest of his sons. This one, this one, no, 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 goes all the way down. And now Sam is confused because the last of Jesse's sons have gone by and God has rejected every single one of them. And so Samuel has to ask, either God made a mistake, he misheard God, or we're missing part of the equation here. So he asks Jesse, hey, are these all your sons? This is, I mean, seven's a lot as it is, but is this everyone? And he's like, oh, well, there's one more. His name is David. He's out in the fields. He's tending to the sheep, um, but I can go fetch him if you would like. So Samuel says to go get him, and David comes, and he sees David. He asks God, and God tells him, this is the guy. This guy is going to be the next king of Israel. And again, if you know the story arc of the Bible, and we talked about it a little bit in the last series, David becomes this cornerstone for the rest of the Bible, and he becomes an icon of the monarchs of Israel, and people sing praises about David. He writes uh, most of the Psalms, and he's this icon of Israelite history, and he's definitely one of the biggest heroes of all time. Um, and when you look at this story, you realize that had not Samuel asked for him, this guy would have never been at that meeting. He would have never been in that room because his own father did not think he was significant enough for him to be in that room with Samuel. Again, to be fair to Jesse, Jesse didn't actually know that Samuel was here to pick the next king, but he did know that the prophet of God, a man of honor, was here in town to offer a sacrifice, and he did not think his youngest son David was worthy of the honor or totally forgot about entirely to be present at this kind of momentous event. And again, his own father, David is someone where his very own father basically slipped his mind and underestimated him to the point where, listen, David, there's a really big event happening tonight. There's a super famous, important person coming, but you don't need to be there. Why don't you go and watch the sheep, okay? Your brothers will be there. They'll be present, um, but we don't need you to be at that event. And again, this is like, when you look at it in the context of the rest of the Bible, had David not been there, had Samuel taken matters into his own hands, had Samuel judged these people by human standards, David would have never been king, and the entire course of, human, uh, of the, Bib- of the biblical, biblical narrative would have changed. And for being honest, there are maybe a few people or a few categories of people in our lives where we don't actively think the thought, oh, God would never use someone like you. But if we're being honest, we'd be quite surprised if they did. Again, that whole idea of David was severely underestimated by everyone in his family, including the people that know and love him the most. And I imagine for a lot of us, there are probably people in our lives where we don't actively think, oh, God would never use someone like you, because that sounds harsh to say, but at the very least, we would be surprised to know that God could speak or work through someone like them. And if you're a parent, chances are one of those categories are your children. I imagine it can seem like, You are the caretaker of this child. You are infinitely more wise and intelligent and capable. And it can seem like a tough pill to swallow um, that your kids can can speak God's word and truth into your life. And if that's ever happened, I'm sure, and again, I don't have any kids, but I imagine it's a very humbling moment where you're doing something and your kid asks you maybe a sobering question. Mom, Dad, why are you? Should you be? How come you always? And I imagine in that moment, it's really hard for you to sit down and be like, my kid has a point. It's probably much easier to put up walls and be like, you don't know anything, okay? I'm doing it because it's grown-up stuff. Go to your homework, right? But I imagine it, if you were to put it on paper, of course God could speak through your kids. But if we're being honest, like, does he really, though? Is that a category of, uh, of human that we would really accept and embrace God's word from? Or people that you look 
People that are down on their luck or worse off than you or you seem lesser than, you deem as lesser than you. There's a moment um, a few months ago when, when Ken shared a, a sermon a while back. He talked about an experience he had where as a youth we went um, for an outreach event. We went to downtown Portland, kind of old Chinatown area, and we were handing out food to homeless people. And he had a moment where he was talking to someone on the street and he was giving him food and that person offered to pray for him. And you can imagine, it's a bit of like a, like a role reversal and it kind of caught him off guard. But Ken remembers that moment so powerfully in his mind where someone that, again, for all intents and purposes, was worse off than him, that could not possibly give him anything, prayed for him and was an enormous blessing for him. Or for maybe it's you. It's, you're so grounded in your faith. You're so established in the church that it's someone that's newer in the church that you feel like, uh, do you really know what you're talking about? Can you really be speaking God's truth into my life? You just got here. You just started reading the Bible. You don't even help out. How could you speak God's truth into my life? Why should I listen to someone that just got started, that doesn't even really understand theology or how the church works or what it's like to believe in God? For me personally, I've had the privilege of helping out in the junior high department at the West Coast Korean Camp meeting. So once a year, a bunch of the Korean churches will get together on the campus of PUC in Northern California. And I've been helping out with the junior high department for about five or six camp meetings. So it's been quite a while. And time after time again, a reoccurring theme from the leaders and the coordinators is, I did not realize I could learn so much from a 12-year-old. Or these 12 and 13-year-olds spoke into my life and changed my life. I was more blessed than they were during this past week. And if you know anything about the way that department works, a lot of our leaders are either upperclassmen in high school or underclassmen in college. And there is a world of a difference between a 12-year-old and a 19-year-old. But time after time again, every year as we're, as we're capping off the week and we're talking with the leaders, they always come up and they tell me some sort of experience about how a 12-year-old a 13-year-old, an 11-year-old spoke into their lives of a college freshman, of a, co- a sophomore in college, and changed their life. And they experienced God's love, and they were blessed because of someone significantly younger, significantly less mature, significantly less intelligent than they were. Don't underestimate who God can speak through. Whether it's your child asking you a sobering question, a new member speaking words of wisdom into your life, or someone with a totally different view on life speaking truth into your life. Don't underestimate who God can speak through because as Samuel discovered, God has a completely different criteria for evaluating human beings. And if we aren't aware of that fact, it can lead to us missing, lead to us missing God work in the lives of others. Or even more tragically, it can lead to us missing how God is trying to work in our own lives through our neighbors. A lot of times it can be so easy for us to write off a certain category or group of people because, well, they don't really know. I know better than them. And it's hard for us to, to lower our ego and our pride or our preconceived notions and allow that person to speak God's will into our lives. And when we do that, it's easy for us to miss how God is working in the lives of our neighbors or to miss how God is trying to speak into our lives through our neighbors because of our preconceived notions. Now, I imagine that for some people in this room, the first question seemed a bit harsh. Like, the first question of why would God use you I imagine there's probably a fair amount of people that are like, I've never actually really had that thought. Like, I'm not that mean of a person. I'm a good person. I've never thought that. But the idea of why God would use me, that is something I've struggled with a lot, right? Like, sure, God can use anyone. I believe that. Anyone, my kids, anyone, all good. But for me, it's a little bit different. I don't know how or why God would want to use me. Of course, God can speak through others, 
and they've been a blessing in my life. There may be for some of you, there are plenty of stories in your life where someone came up to you, an unexpected person, came up to you and blessed your life immensely with words of wisdom or something they did, or they were there for you in a moment of need. And because of that, you saw the love of God through someone else. But when it comes to what you can do, how you can serve God, how God can use you to show other people his love, you're a little more wary. You're like, I don't know how I feel about that. I'm not sure that God would even want to use someone like me, because we know ourselves better than anyone else. We know the worst versions of ourselves better than anyone else. Which brings me to my second favorite movie of all time. Um, again, my first movie, I watched Ratatouille, Disney, Pixar, food, kind of fun, cooking. You can kind of see where this is going. Uh, my second, I don't know if I can confidently say it's my second favorite movie of all time, but the movie I've watched the second most amount of times with my family is um, the movie adaptation of the Broadway show Fiddler on the Roof, um, which is very different from Ratatouille. But uh, growing up, uh, we used to have like, these family movie times, and my mom loved that movie. I don't know why, but we loved Fiddler on the Roof. And the songs are really fun. If you've never watched it, it's a really good, it's a really good movie. Um, but basically, it follows the life of, of this guy named Reb Tevia, and he's a poor Jewish, like, like a milkman, sort of. And he hands out milk and cheese to the community. Um, so again, he's got a really big family, and he makes very, very little money. And at one point in the show, he's sitting in his barn, and he's... He sort of prays to God, and he asks God, why am I not rich? Basically asks God, like, would it have been such a terrible thing, God, if, if, if you made me rich? And he basically asks God why his lot in life was worse than others. And in doing so, he kind of gets theological. He said, God, you, you are in charge. Of course, you are God, and you are amazing, and you, you, Lord, who made the lion and the lamb, you decreed I should be what I am. And then he asks this question, would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy man? And there's this moment in the this, in this song where he's like, he's reminiscing and he's like, oh, if I were rich, I would do all these things. And he has this kind of fantastical fantasy where he like just paints this picture of what it would like to be rich. And it's very different from what I imagine any of us would say. He would have three staircases, one going straight up, one going straight down, one going nowhere just for show. He would have a tin roof. He would have real wooden floors. He would have a bunch of chickens and stuff. But again, in this reminiscing, it's a really funny song, and he's, he's reminiscing, and I imagine a lot of us can relate maybe in part to this at some point in your life. Man, God, why couldn't I have just been a little bit, a little bit wealthier? Like, would it really have spoiled, like, the entire great controversy if I just had a few extra dollars, God? What, how bad could it have been? God, and I admit, you know, you made me who I am, but how terrible would it have been if I was just a little, little bit richer? Again, I think something a lot of us can potentially relate to. But then the real kind of theme comes out in the last line that he says. Again, he finishes reminiscing about, oh, if I was rich, I would be a better husband, I would have a bigger house, I could be a better father, all these things. And then in the end, he says this, if I were rich, I'd have the time that I lack to sit in the synagogue and pray and maybe have a seat by the Eastern Wall and I'd discuss the holy books with the learned men seven hours every day and that would be the sweetest thing of all. At the end, he kind of shows a bit of his true colors, where essentially what he's doing is he's wrapping up this idea of wanting to be rich as an excuse as to why he cannot be a better Christian, a better father, a better husband. He's saying, if I was just rich, if my life was a little bit better, if my lot in life was slightly improved, I could be, I could be a better person, God. But you made me poor, so I'm not that good of a husband. And you made me poor, and that's why I don't read my Bible as much. You did this thing in my life, God, and that's why I'm not as good of a person as I would like 
to be. And it's so easy for us to make excuses that Reb Tevye does in the song as to why we can't do certain things. And again, I imagine if anyone has ever approached you at some point, if you grew up in the church and asked you, hey, would you be willing to serve God in this capacity? Would you be willing to be used by God? Can you give your time to help God, work through God? Um, it's really easy for us, I imagine, to come up with an excuse. I couldn't. I can't. Because, and it's so easy for us to make excuses about ourselves. And I know this from this particular season of my life, and I've shared this earlier, I shared this maybe a year ago in a sermon, that I got a, a gym membership. And I have found that getting a gym membership, going to the gym, and being fit are three entirely different things. And there is no correlation between the three. Getting a gym membership is strictly a financial decision. Nothing else. And, you can go, and I realize you can go to the gym occasionally, as I do, casually, and still not be fit because of what you eat or what you do with the rest of your life. And you can be very fit and not have a gym membership. Again, these three very, very, very different things I've realized. And part of the reason I know that is because it is so, so easy to make an excuse for inaction. I could do anything. A big lunch, a small dinner, that's why I can't work out. Oh, I have small groups tomorrow, so I can't work out now. Oh, you know, I was going to work out, but I'm in the middle of the show. They're so, it's too easy to talk yourself out of doing something you don't want to do, whether it's going to the gym, whether it's, you know, taking care of things on your to-do list, or whether it's something like serving God. It's so easy for us to make excuses for us to go outside of our comfort zone. I can't, because actually, I had a really big dinner, and usually if I go work out right after, I might throw up, I get a little queasy, so I probably shouldn't. I've made that excuse at least 30 times. It's too easy to do so. But again, the problem is that it's too easy for us to pass off an attitude of, of I can't because X, Y, and Z. And I feel like the most dangerous excuse is this. And maybe this is an excuse that most people in this room can relate to. It's really easy to make the excuse as to you cannot serve God because I'm not good enough. I'm not a good enough Christian. I haven't been at church long enough. I don't have a strong enough relationship with God. I'm not the most morally upstanding person. And the reason that's the most dangerous excuse is because it seems like it's humility. And it's masked under this, this, this guise of, whoa, whoa, I'm not a good enough person. I know myself. I'm going to check my pride at the door and realize that I cannot actually help out because I'm not a good enough person. And in doing so, A, you seem like a good person because that doesn't seem like an arrogant thing to say, right? It seems like the arrogant thing to say would be, oh, yeah, well, I could help out because I'm such a good person. I'm glad you asked, right? But no one has ever said that in the history of any church volunteership, right? We always say, oh, I can't because ugh, am I a good enough person to teach Sabbath school? Yeah, I mean, I can do praise, Ed, but like, oh, I haven't done my devotional in a really, really long time. Yes, I could help out with X, Y, and Z, but if I'm being honest, I don't know if I'm a good enough person. Are you sure you want someone like me up there? And what that accomplishes is, A, it makes you seem like a good person. It makes you feel a little good inside because you, quote, unquote, did a good thing. You're being humble. But, B, it really is just an excuse for you to not go out of your comfort zone. If we're being truly, truly honest with ourselves, and the problem with that is it's too easy for us to pass off the attitude as humility that I can't be used by God, I can't serve God, I can't speak to someone on God's behalf because I'm not that great of a person. And it sounds like a good thing to say, but if we're being honest, it truly is just a manipulation of what's really going on. And you see this again when we go back to David. The problem with that rationale is that it's not actually true, and it seems we're in the clear. 
Um, a few weeks ago, we had a reenactment of David versus Goliath here on this very stage, and it was amazing. Um, and one of the scenes that that musical portrayed was there's an interaction between David and Saul before they actually get to fight, right? David approaches Saul, and he's like, when you read the scripture, he comes off as this cocky, young, naive rookie, right? I can, I can take Goliath, right? I can beat him. I've, I, I tend sheep, so therefore I can kill a giant, right? And Saul comes off as this cautious military, like, oh, like, it makes sense that Saul's afraid because he's a tactician. He's seen war. He's seen battle. He knows. He knows, what, he knows something you don't know, David. And when you read the scripture, he does come off as kind of cocky and arrogant. And it seems like Saul is the wise military mastermind that's like, listen, I've seen this before. This guy's a real deal. And David, and especially David's argument, it's one that's like, it's kind of weak. Let me read what David's argument as to why he can't fight Goliath. This is what he says to Saul. Your servant, David, has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from his mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Because he has defied the armies of the living God, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. And when you read the first half of that, of that monologue where he's, he's defending his case to King Saul, it's a very, very, very weak argument, right? His argument is this, I tend sheep. Sometimes wild animals attack the sheep and I fight them off. Therefore, I can kill an armored giant, right? It's a very, very weak argument. I was just saying, you know what? I killed physics. I did really well in physics, so I will for sure do well in organic chemistry, right? Just because you did well in one hard science class does not necessarily translate. And you can see why Saul is not convinced by that first half. Dude, yes, a lion is scary. A bear is scary. But it is not the same as a trained military armored giant who has years of fighting experience. I get it, David. Congrats. Prop to you. You can fight a bear. But this is not the same thing. But David's case really gets made in the second half of that monologue. Your servant has killed both the lion and the lamb, this a lion and the bear, this uncircumcised Philistine will be just like them. Because, because he, meaning Goliath, has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David's case, his argument isn't made from the fact that he has experience fighting wild animals. That could be besides the point. He could have left that entire part out and his argument would not have lost any weight. His main argument is this. This giant has defied God. And I, David, I am confident in the fact that me fighting this giant is within the bounds of God's will. And because I'm doing God's will, God will bear the brunt and the weight of this interaction, and I will come out on top because of God, not because of me. And its core, David's confidence doesn't come from his fighting ability and his history of attacking lions because it's a poor argument. That's not why David is confident. David draws his confidence from who is backing him. David draws his confidence from the fact that he is doing God's will. And because he is doing God's will, he is confident in God's ability to overcome any shortcoming he has in the fighting department. And to be honest, as I was preparing this sermon, I couldn't help but feel this on a bit of a personal level. Again, when you read the story of, of this David's interaction with Saul, it's very easy to, to chalk David up as, as a naive kid. Right? If you, you haven't had much battle experience, and that's why you're being as cocky as you are. But if you really read what David is saying, his confidence is not from the fact that he has experience fighting at all. 
it, it couldn't matter more or less that he fought a bear or a lion in the past. It comes from the fact that for David, he is so confident that what he is doing is God's will. And because he's so confident that God is backing him, he can be assured that whatever shortcoming he has in the fighting department, whatever lack of experience he has, however slow his reflexes are, however short he is, God is big enough to overcome any of those shortcomings in his life. And again, we see that in how the story played out. And we see that throughout the story of David and Saul. If you look at Saul's reign, again, so much of Saul comes from his pride and his ego and his inability to admit that he did anything wrong. Anytime Samuel addresses him and said, hey, God didn't tell you to, why did you? He's always like, whoa, 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 well, if you were in my shoes, if you understood, then you would know. But honestly, if you think about it, don't you think God would like this more? So much of Saul's downfall comes from the fact that he lacks any level of humility, humility and everything he did was based on what he could do his prior military experience, who he was as a person, how charismatic and tall and good-looking he was. Yet the first real interaction we see with David is, hey, I get it. I didn't make the strongest. I'm not the greatest military man. I haven't fought that many giants. But I will tell you this. I know for a fact that what I am doing is within the bounds of God's will. And because I know that God is backing me, I can be assured that victory will be won in the name of God. And that's really how he does a lot of his, of his reign. And aside from the one moment he has his downfall, a lot of David's reign, and the reason he's so celebrated as knowing God's heart, a man, being a man after God's own heart, is because he understood that, in, that very important concept in leading Israel, that it wasn't him leading Israel. He was being used by God to do something bigger than himself. And to be honest, as I mentioned earlier, as I was playing the sermon, I couldn't help but feel a little bit of this on a, on a personal level. I've shared my testimony and call to ministry many, many times before, um, so I'm not going to go through all of it. But one of the main reasons I felt um, I was very cautious and, and hesitant about fully committing to the ministry was because I knew myself better than anybody else. And I knew who I was in my, in my lowest moments and every moment I have in my life that was filled with shame or regret, I was in the driver's seat of that decision. And I knew that and I understood that. And because of that, I, I couldn't help but have this nagging sense of like unworthiness. Like, yes, of course, God can use anyone. But like, I know myself in my lowest moments, in my darkest moments. I know my present struggles, my history, all the stuff that I've done and probably will continue to struggle with I don't know that I'm the person to do something like this. Lead a church, be a spiritual leader, anything like that. Influence teenagers, that's, that's far out of, not only is it out of my comfort zone, that's out of my, I, sh- I do not qualify for a job like this. And I imagine that for a lot of people in this room, maybe you've had that thought in one way, shape, or form. It's really easy for us to, to, to be drawn and give attention to our shortcomings. Right? How can I help? How can I serve God? How can God speak through me? How can I be a vessel for God? when I've done all these things, when I just came off doing something I'm ashamed of, when I'm still struggling with the same things I'm struggling, I've been struggling with for decades, how can I? And a lot of times what we can do is we'll either, either let that pressure get to us and we'll say no, or we'll water down whatever request they're making to make it not spiritual at all, right? Oh, would you like to help to be part of the potluck team or be in praise? And we'll say, listen, I'm not very spiritual and you know, I'm not gonna do, but if all you need me to do is play guitar and strum? Sure, I can do that. Oh yeah, I'm not really like involved in church and I don't really have a devotional life with God, but if all I need to do is stir fry some bean sprouts, yes, I can do that. And a lot of times it's a more palatable pill for us to swallow when we just completely take God out of it. Yeah, like I can help at a church. If all you need me to do is, is press some buttons, sure. But keep in mind, 
God's not going to speak through me. God's not going to work through me because I'm not that guy. I'm not that girl. I'm not that person. I'm not the person that's in with God. I know the inconsistencies in my devotional life more than anybody else. Every moment in my life where I've put my agenda above others, my agenda above God's, my wants, my needs, my desires over God, I know all those moments, and it's been countless, countless times. Yet, being that from my perspective, again, when I was going to ministry, that was very much the hang-up that I had. Sure, if you just need me to babysit kids, then I should not be a youth pastor because I've never really done that before and I'm not great with kids. But if you need me to affect change and help people have a relationship with God, then I am most definitely not the person for that job because I know the lowest moments every part of my life. And again, I constantly, I I was too aware of my shortcomings and too aware of the obstacles that God would have to overcome in order to make me a viable vessel in any way, shape, or form. Yet, as I end this sermon, I want to end with this and again, this, this comes from a place of confident, confident humility. If there has been anything good that I have ever done, I can confidently say in complete, wholehearted honesty that I truly believe it was because God was powerful enough to overcome my sinful, selfish, shameful self and that truly anyone can be used by God despite their sinful past or present struggles, because whatever it is that you have, once it's surrendered into God's hands, if you are truly serving the will of God, it is no longer your concern. And I can truly say from the bottom of my heart that there is no greater blessing than the confidence of knowing that you took part in showing someone else the love of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, as, as I as we finish this talk and and look forward to a a weekend or a week of volunteer and serving you, God, Lord, I understand it as I'm sure you do, Lord, Um, the spirit of Gideon, God, who are we? We are the smallest and we know our, our insecurities and our flaws better than anybody else. Who are we that you would use us, God? Who am I that you would think highly of us, highly enough at least, to use us according to your will, God? Lord, it's easy for us to forget that the person that knows us better than ourselves is you, God. And you are the one that calls us. And you're the one that asks us to be your hands and feet, the salt and the light on this earth, Father. And I ask that in any moment, whether it's in this upcoming week for Vacation Bible School or in the future, whatever task it is that we have um, when it's called to serve you, Lord, that you remind us of that fact, Lord. That it's not our insecurities versus other people, but it's how big you are in the face of our own obstacles, Father. Lord, help us to remember how big and how powerful and how capable you are and that there's nothing, definitely not our shortcomings that can stop you and your will and your love and the spread of your kingdom here on earth, Father. Lord, I ask that if there's anyone here that has that opportunity to come again in the future to serve you and to be your hands and feet, Lord, help us to get out of our own way and serve you. I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.